Heavenly Father, we know those words are true, that there is no love that is higher, no love that is wider, that there is no love that is deeper, that there is no love that is truer than your love. And we thank you that in your love you gave us your word. We thank you that in, these, in this book, Lord, contains a picture of who you are. It contains a revelation of who you are. It's your word to us. And so we give you praise that we have an opportunity as a church family every Sunday to come and open up your word and to to listen to your voice, to see you. And so I pray that as we do that now, as we move into this time where we have a chance to open your word, I pray that you would move in the lives of your people. That no matter why people are here, some may be here for the first time, some may have been here every day the door has been open for the last 25 years. But Lord, we know that you have something to speak to each person today. So I pray that you would move in power, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to make us receptive to the word that you have for us. We give you thanks in advance for what you're going to do. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray as a church family together. Amen. All right, you may find your seat. It's kind of fun with these banners. You know when a new sermon series is coming. You know when it's here. And so if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to go ahead and open it with me to Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is one of those good books um, that are easy to find because it's, and you have Genesis and Revelation. Genesis being the first book, Revelation the very last book. So just make your way to the very end of your Bible and you'll find the book of Revelation you don't have a Bible, we like to say this very often, but if you don't own a Bible, we've got Bibles in the pews, and for some of you under your seats, feel free to take that Bible and, and make it your own. Take that home with you today. From now until Easter Sunday, which is on April 16th this year, we as a church family are going to be doing this new sermon series that, as you can see, is called Seven. It's going to be a study of seven very different churches that were given letters in the book of Revelation. Now what we're going to find is that these churches, they all have good qualities and they have bad qualities. And we're going to learn something about what Jesus sees in a church that is healthy and is, is uh, full of his presence. Uh, if you would, go ahead and put that picture on the screen, Kicho. On the screen you can see the seven different churches we're going to talk about. You've got Ephesus, Smyrna, per- Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. As a quick side note, all of these cities are in modern-day Turkey, and our church, as soon as the, uh, the safety conditions in that area of the world get a little bit better, our church is going to be taking a trip. We've got two of our global partners that serve in this area of the world, and we're going to be taking a trip to come alongside them and do ministry. But one of the interesting things about that trip also is going to be that we are going to do a stop at each of those seven locations on that trip. And so I would just encourage you, that's going to be coming. We'll let you know when that's going to be. We're going to give you dates, but we'd love for you to join us on that trip when it's available to actually go and see where these seven churches in the book of Revelation were. Now, the main question that we are going to seek to answer in the study of these seven churches is simply this. What makes up a quality, healthy church? What characteristics, what what qualities would Jesus say are most important in the life of a church family, in the life of a congregation, no matter where it's located, whether it's in one of those seven cities or whether it's here in the city of San Francisco? What, What makes up a good, solid, healthy church? church. 
Some of you this morning may be guest with us, and maybe you're visiting churches throughout the city trying to figure out where am I going to land, and you're asking that question, how do I know if this church is what it is really meant to be? For those of us who have been part of this congregation for a while, it's easy to get complacent. We stop asking the question, are we, as a church, First Baptist Church of San Francisco, healthy? Are we pleasing to God? How are we to know if that's the case? For many churches, this is a struggle to to answer. In a lot of areas of life, it's very easy to measure success or health. Um, Take, for instance, some of you are students, maybe high school or college or you're in graduate school. Uh, Teachers give what in order to measure whether you're successful? They give tests. They give research projects to kind of measure if if you're actually attaining the information that they want you to retain. Uh, In the business world, it's very easy to measure success and health. You look at profits and revenues. You look at stock market, how it's doing. You look at number of patrons, number of clients. You have all these very concrete measurables to measure health. Social media, where it's very easy to measure whether one of our posts was successful. How many likes did I get? right? How many comments? How many people said something? Did the right people comment? We, we have ways of measuring these things. But when it comes to the life of a church, it's different. It's harder. And so what do some churches do? They, they go out and they look for outside consultants to come in, if they're, especially if they're struggling. They're seeing hardship. They bring outside people in to come and to show them their blind spots. That's all good and well, but friends, what we need to see in this, what we're going to learn in this whole series is that there is only one person that has the knowledge and wisdom and skill to give us an accurate appraisal of the health of our church or any church. And that's what we're going to read about in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. If you would, go ahead and look with me at verse 1 in chapter 2. The Word of God says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the golden seven golden lampstands. Now, let's stop there, because if you've just picked up your Bible and you read that, you're probably thinking, what is going on here, right? Who is this person, seven gold lampstands, seven stars, what are we even talking about? Well, here at the beginning of the series, let me just give you a little background information that will hopefully help us throughout the rest of this sermon series. If you would, go ahead and turn with me back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, what you're going to find is that the person who writes the book of Revelation, his name is the Apostle John. Okay? John is also the writer of the, the Gospel of John and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John toward the end of the Scriptures. But John, in this moment, as he's going to write this book, is actually exiled on an island called Patmos. It's an island just off the coast where he was pastoring. Now, by this point when he's writing the book of Revelation, he's toward the end of his life. Okay, This is a man who knew Jesus, who served Jesus. He had given Jesus everything, had pastored churches, even the church we're going to be looking at today, the church at Ephesus. This was a man who had given his all for the kingdom. And because of that, the leading authorities of their day tried to kick him out. They said, we're tired of hearing from you. So they exiled him to this island called Patmos. Well, as he's there in Patmos, exiled away from other believers, in this moment, he says on the Lord's day, he was in prayer. He was in the Spirit. And as he was in the Spirit, it says that he heard a thundering voice begin to speak to him. Now, if that were to happen to you, you'd probably be as startled as he was. And so what does he do? He turns around, and all of a sudden, as he turns around, 
he enters into this significant vision. And this significant vision is going to carry him throughout the book of Revelation. He's going to write down what he sees in this vision. But I want you to read what he sees, the first thing, in chapter 1, verse 12. If you would, look at it. This is John, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like furnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This morning I want you to imagine that, that you're praying and you hear a voice and you turn around and this is what you see. This is the vision that you have. Would that not be terrifying? I mean, John in this moment, he sees this, this figure so powerful. It says his, son, his, his presence was like the sun in all of its splendor. He couldn't handle it. And so what does it say? It says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is terrified. In his mind, no doubt, he is thinking, Who is this being? Who is this person and what does he want of me? What does it say? But he, talking about the, per, the figure, it says, But he held, laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I love this passage. It's a picture of this all-powerful figure coming down and putting his hand on John. And what does he say? In essence, he says, John, fear not. It is me, Jesus. There's no one else that fits this description other than Jesus. He says, I am the first and the last. Everything was created by me and created for me. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. This is Jesus. What a comforting thought that would have been to John who, who walked with Jesus on this earth, but now he sees him glorified. And then, he, and then Jesus says this to John, verse 19. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are about to take place. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven churches we talked about. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here you get all the background information you need. I realize that the book of Revelation, if you've never read the book of Revelation, it's full of language that is symbolism and all these different things. But Jesus makes it very clear here. What he's saying is this, that I am the Lord of my church. I am the shepherd. I hold the church in my hand. That picture of the, right, the seven stars is he's saying, these seven churches, I hold you in my hand. I am sovereign over you. You are under my authority. But not only that, Jesus also looks at these seven churches, the, symbolized by the seven golden lampstands, which were a picture that they were to be a light in a very dark world. And he says, I walk among you. Which in essence what Jesus was saying is this, I, I see you. I see you as you gather together for worship. I see you as you serve one another. I see you as you open the words of the scriptures. I see everything and even more than that, I see your heart, which makes me 
the only one worthy of assessing your true condition. And that's why Jesus is speaking to John to say, I want you to speak these words to these seven churches. What we have here, Jesus is the greatest church consultant there has ever been, right? He's able to look at our hearts. He's able to see what's behind the scenes. And he says, I'm going to give each of these seven churches an assessment. I want you to know how you're doing. And I want to be clear about how you are doing. That is what makes this study so unique. And it's what it makes it so powerful. Because in the scriptures, you have all sorts of other places where Peter and James and John are writing letters to the different churches. But this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus himself speaks directly to the church, where he speaks to us. And so, I wonder this morning, as we go into this study, how would Jesus assess First Baptist Church of San Francisco? Well, let's take a look at that by looking at these other churches. The first spotlight that Jesus shines is on this church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, in many ways, had a lot going for it. I mean, you think about Ephesus, we don't think about it now. If you go to Ephesus now, there is no congregation. All you will find is is old remnants of a society that used to be. But at that time, Ephesus was the driving city in this part of the world. It had about 250,000 people. It was the center of commerce and business. It was the center of entertainment. It was the center of religion in this part of the world. This was a very important city. For that reason, during the missionary journeys, Paul and his friends Priscilla and Aquila and others planted the church in Ephesus, and then they watched it as it grew, and it did grow. It grew significantly during these days. I mean, you think about it, in in its 40 years, so this was written about 40 years after the church had been established. In that 40-year period, I want you to think about the pastors that this church had. The Apostle Paul, Timothy, Apollos, and the Apostle John. It's pretty good pastors, wouldn't you say? You you should be doing well if you have those pastors. These are the greatest lineup of pastors in the history of the world. And what Jesus says is, in many ways, you are doing well. Church, you have a lot going for you. He begins to, to give high praise to the church at Ephesus. And I want you to see this. What does Jesus give high praise for in a church? Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So when he looks at this church, he says, I know everything about you, and I find some really, really amazing things about you, church at Ephesus. The very first thing is that you are a hardworking church church. You look at that word toil in that word, that denotes labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion, okay? So this was not a church where people just kind of came and went. This was a church where their members literally gave all they had to kingdom work. This was a church where everybody was involved. Uh, You'll find there's many statistics out there about churches, and what many statistics say is this, that 20% of the church does about 80% of the work. So what you'll find common in a lot of churches that 20% of the people do 80% of the work and the ministry. Well, that wasn't the case in the church at Ephesus. When Jesus looks at this church, he says, you know what? When you see a need, you meet that, that need. 
You're committed to teaching. You're committed to hospitality. You're, you're committed to reaching your community. You're committed to loving one another well. You're doing all of the actions that I would want you to do. Church, you should be commended. I wonder this morning if the Lord were to look at our church with this word toil, this word that gives labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion for his kingdom, I wonder what Jesus would say about us. Are we truly serving him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our mind? Well, he goes on to say, not only do, is this a church that toils, but this is a tough church. Okay, It's a tough church. We're going to talk about this in the weeks to come, but in this day, severe persecution was breaking out among God's people. The culture around the church was not happy about them proclaiming this gospel, proclaiming this Messiah that offers life. And so they were staunchly opposed to it. Many Christians were dying. Many Christians were being, and, and just like John, exiled. They were being punished for their faith. And yet, what does Jesus say to this church? Jesus says, I see you. I see your patient endurance. Verse 3. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He says, I see the way that you have accepted hardship and toil and persecution, and for many of you, even death for my name's sake. And you should be commended for that. You are enduring in the midst of suffering. So Jesus is offering praise. He says, not only do you toil, but you're tough. And then finally, look at that next verse. It says this. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So the last thing that Jesus commends them for is this, that they highly valued doctrine. They made sure that their church was believing things that were in alignment with the gospel. They held on to the gospel even when the churches around them were caving in to the culture. You see, there's a danger in every generation, their generation and ours, for churches to allow the culture to dictate what we believe instead of relying on God's word to dictate what we believe. But when he looks at the church at Ephesus, he says, that's not happening with you. You are bearing strong. You are staying committed to truth. He had warned, the Apostle Paul had warned the church at Ephesus that this was going to take place. You have to remember, Paul actually spent about two and a half years with the church at Ephesus. And right as he's leaving, I want you to listen to these words that he tells the pastors right before he goes. He says this in Acts chapter 20. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You say both in their day and in our day, it's very, very common for both within the church and from without the church for people to say, you know what, I want to create a different kind of Christianity. I want to create a Christianity that doesn't call as much of me into the picture, that doesn't demand as much. I want to create a Christianity that, that allows me to kind of believe what I want to believe about this and kind of live however I want to live, but still call myself a follower of Jesus. He calls these people wolves, but they're out to take the flock. And so the Ephesians had done a good job of watching out for these wolves. 
They tested everything. They tested everyone. If someone came in and said, this is what God teaches, they would measure it in alignment with the scriptures and with the gospel, what they had been passed down. This was a church committed to doctrine, and Jesus says, that is important. I give you high praise. Now, as you think about these things, would you not expect, and would it not be easy for the Ephesian believers to hear this high praise and just kind of start patting themselves on the back? I mean, wouldn't it be easy for us if Jesus were to come to us and say, hey, First Baptist, you work hard, you, you patiently endure suffering, and you hold on to good doctrine. Wouldn't you begin to say, well, yeah, I think we did everything that a good church should do. The problem with that is that our celebration would be a little premature, wouldn't it? It would be like many of uh, the Atlanta Falcons fans in the middle of the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago, right? When you're up 28-3, it said there's news stories I was reading about all these stores that had begun to put all this merchandise of Super Bowl champions all over Atlanta, only to find out what? That they weren't going to win. They had nothing to celebrate. Even uh, Even the owner of the Atlanta Falcons came down to the sideline. If you saw that, I felt bad. That was rough. But before we celebrate, Jesus says this important thing. While good, all these things are good, solid doctrine, solid works, enduring suffering, all of these things are good and they are needed in the life of a church. But he says you haven't measured up. Why? Verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, in the midst of all their praiseworthy characteristics, Jesus' all-knowing eye spotted a fatal flaw in the church at Ephesus. They had abandoned their first love, and it is this love that mattered most to Jesus. Think about the painful indictment that this would have been. The church at Ephesus was doing all the right things. They were believing the right things, and yet Jesus comes to them and says, you have not measured up. Why? Because you have lost your love. That shouldn't be surprising to us. What did Jesus say when asked about the greatest commandment in Matthew 22? What did he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. At another point, when Jesus had started to gather all sorts of crowds that were trying to be near him, what did Jesus say? He said something very startling. I want to read it to you. Luke 14. He said, Now great great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You read that and you think, what? What is Jesus saying? That I have to hate my family and I have to hate my own life if I want to follow him? What is he saying? Well, he's using hyperbole to do what? To say this, the love that you have for me should be so great that love for anything else in comparison should look like hate. That's why later he clarifies, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Even in these relationships that we're most close in, he says, your love for, for me should be immensely greater than that. You're called to love me. Church, when a love like that is not present, we begin to look like Ephesus doing all the right things, believing all the right things, but found lacking in the eyes of Jesus Christ. 
If you look at the history of God's people, this has always been a problem. It's always been a problem. Even before Jesus came, you look at the people of Israel. And, and, and they, they kept wandering from this first love. Uh, God sends Jeremiah the prophet to speak to them, and he says this. He says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. He's saying, I remember when you loved me like a bride loves the groom. I remember that. But what did Israel do? They strayed. They began to go after other lovers. They began to give their love to other things instead of the God who had rescued them, who had made them his bride. Well, the same thing has happened to the church at Ephesus. The honeymoon period had ended. They were saying and doing all the right things, but at the core, love for Christ was not present. It would be very similar to me coming to you this morning and pulling out my checkbook. And in that payment box, putting nine zeros. No matter how many zeros I put, how much is that check worth? Zero, right? It's worthless. But you take one number. I just put the number one at the beginning of those nine zeros, and who would not want that check, right? All of a sudden, that check becomes of immense worth. Well, that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. You have right beliefs, you have right actions, you have all these things, but friend, they are worthless unless you put love for me at the center of the equation. When love is put at the beginning of all these things, when everything else is an outflow of a love for me, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. This is what Jesus is getting at. The core of everything we do as a church should be devotion to him. That's why we've summarized it. For those of you that don't know, we are putting forward a new mission statement for our church. And really, it's nothing more than what God has given the mission of the church. But we wanted to say it very simply. And this is what we've come up with. The mission of First Baptist Church of San Francisco is to lead people to love and live for Jesus. Why did we put love at the core? Because all the living for Jesus has to come out of that love that we have for him. If we don't love him, we will not love one another. If we do not love him, we will not love this city. If we do not love him, we will not live for him and obey his commandments. It starts with a heart that loves him supremely. This had once been true for the church at Ephesus, but now one generation later, 40 years went by, they were going through all the same motions, but their heart was not beating with affection for Jesus. I would imagine that you probably have seen this kind of thing happen in uh, the marriages of some friends, family, of people around you. At one time in that marriage, there was a burning desire to be together, right? There was a burning desire to know one another, to spend time with one another. There was a sincere, devote love for one another. But as time passed, what happened? That true desire just became kind of formality. That couple, while they may be doing all the actions that look like love, while they may have given some kind of Valentine's flowers this last week, they may have said good words, you can see it in their eyes, that love that they once had for one another is no longer there. It's just formalism. It's just actions. It's just ritual. But on the other hand, one of my favorite things to see 
is those older couples, whether it's on the beach or in the store somewhere, and what do you see? You see them holding hands, right? In their last days, they've been together through thick and thin, and they're holding hands. Now, admittedly, that may be because they're trying to hold the other person up, but <laughs> many times you see it, right? There's a love for one another, and although it's maybe not as passionate, maybe you don't have all the, the moves of the, the earlier years, all you still see there's a deep love for one another. I wonder this morning, which of those two types of marriage is a more fitting description of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it mere formalism? You're going through the actions, you believe the right things, you say the right things, but at your core you do not have a true love for him? Or is your entire life an outflow of love? You've been walking with him for years, maybe for some of you you've been walking for weeks or months, and you love him, you want to be with him. The main question that this passage asks is simply this, do you love Jesus? There's a great danger that we cannot miss. It is possible to be the most active servant in the church. It is possible to be the most knowledgeable Bible scholar in the church. It is possible to be the most courageous martyr in the church, and yet to lack love for Jesus Christ. Where are you this morning? If you say, Ryan, that's me. I'm like the church at Ephesus. I've lost my first love. I may be doing all the right things, but I've lost it. I don't have that love. What do you do? Well, Jesus points us in the right direction in verse 5. What does he say? He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. That word remember is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing action. What he's saying is this, remember from where you've come from. Remember the love that you once had for Jesus. Church family, do you remember when you were so in love with him that you could not wait to get up to spend time with him? That you could not wait to open up his word? It wasn't something formal that you had to do, but you wanted to be with him. Do you remember when, when you literally could not help but share with others about what you were learning about him and what you were sharing? You were wanting them to know him too. Jesus says, remember from where you've fallen. Go back to that first love. Remember that you didn't love him first. He loved you. Remember that he died on the cross for your sin, taking the punishment that you deserve. Remember all of the undeserved mercies and blessings that he's given you. Remember the love that he has for you. And then what does he say? Not only remember, but repent. That word repent is literally a make a 180 turn. If you've just been doing the formalism and the rituals, what he says is go back to what you were doing in the first. He says it right after that. He says, do the works that you did at first. Go back to the basics. Go spend time with him. Go read his word. Go to church. Be with other believers and tell people what you're learning about him. Repent. Confess this morning your cold heart of indifference toward him. Repent. If we don't, what will happen Look at the end of that verse. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that if a church does not repent of its cold heart, if it doesn't return to its first love, then eventually that church will cease to exist. That church will lose its power. That church will no longer be that light of Jesus' presence in the midst of a dark, dark world. 
Remember, that's what that whole picture of the lampstand is about, that we are meant to be his presence, his light in the midst of darkness. He says, you will cease to be. I wonder, church family, do you realize that this can happen? All of this, what we're reading, can happen in only one generation. It is very possible for once vibrant congregations in only one generation to descend into ineffectiveness and darkness and in many cases close their doors forever. If you don't believe me, simply drive around the city of San Francisco. What you will find as you drive around is once vibrant churches that once proclaimed the gospel, that once cared for the poor, that once offered prayers, all of these amazing congregations that are now carpet showrooms, that are now condos to be lived in, that are now music venues. I can guarantee you that none of those churches intentionally made the decision, we're going to descend into nothing. But friends, that is exactly what happens when we lose absolute devotion to Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, our beliefs and our actions that are rituals, eventually those fade and we become powerless in the midst of this city. If it can happen in one generation in Ephesus, then I'll just tell you this, in San Francisco, as much transient nature of our city, as much of that as we have, it can happen in one decade, church. And that's why we as a church, if we're at this place, if we're being honest and we say we have lost our first love this morning, then I'm just asking, church family, that we repent, that we confess that, we openly confess that, that we don't hide that, but we say, Jesus, I've lost my first love, but I want you. I want to desire you. I want to desire your word. I want to desire to share about you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to know you. One of the most terrifying passages in all the Bible is Matthew 7.22. When when people who think they're believers come face to face with Jesus and they say this. It says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. My prayer this morning as we begin to assess the health of our church, when I look at this passage, I see so many things in our church that are similar to Ephesus. I see in our church a church that does work hard. I mean, goodness, there are so many of you that serve the body. There are so many of you that are serving our community, that are seeking to make much of Jesus. I see a church that endures well. This culture is not just in alignment with us, and yet you endure, you you continue to go to work and proclaim your faith. You continue to be strong in the midst of hardship. In this church, we are standing solidly on doctrine. Truth matters to this church. I see so many things in us that look like Ephesus, but I pray that this last one would not be true, that we would not be a church that has lost its first love. This morning, I want to give us some time in response to just simply be honest with God. Right there where you're at. I'm asking you this morning. I'm your pastor. I don't know where you are with Jesus. I see you doing the outward stuff. I don't know your heart. Is it alive with devotion to Jesus or is it dead? Is it just merely formal ritual? Only you know that. But God has given us this moment to repent. If that's us, to confess our cold hearts and to seek to love him even more.
This morning, there's not any major action steps you can take other than what Paul said or what Jesus says. He says, go back to doing the things you did at first. Spend time with him. Prayer, scripture. Talk about him. Be with him. Let's pray together. In this moment of quiet, I would just invite you to to be very honest before God. Here in just a moment, I'll come back up and I'll close our time of prayer together.